Tim Sanford was the artistic director of Playwrights Horizon when he first read a play by Anne Washburn titled Mr. Burns, A Post-Electric Play, reminding us that the piece falls into the dystopic category. He writes, Mr. Burns' charms lay in the fact that it doesn't seem like a disaster story at all. That doesn't mean that as we glean what has happened to our world, we don't get a chill from its creepy prescience. And it is all the creepier because it doesn't feel like Anne's purpose in writing it has been to creep us out. It's not a narrative for thrill-seekers. It doesn't transform its characters into action heroes. The people we meet in the play just seem like people. We meet them telling stories around a campfire, trying to recreate a favorite TV show. Gradually, we realize they have no choice. Without electricity, there's no TV or stereo anymore, and that means returning to the ancient art of storytelling. As the play unfolds over the years, the storytelling becomes an important cornerstone in a new barter economy. And yes, the Simpsons series lies at the heart of this storytelling, and that brings a certain whimsy to the enterprise. But what is surprising and subversive and ultimately idealistic about the play is that the importance of the disaster context here is simply to raise the stakes of the story. That's what I mean about turning it inside out. Anne's premise posits sweetly and fiercely that in our time of greatest duress, our stories, our art, become more important than ever, literally the key to our survival. Now, I don't mean to make it seem so highfalutin. File this away and just go for the ride. There's no question that a primary purpose of the retelling game the characters perform at the top is just for a little much-needed comic relief. There's nothing wrong with art as entertainment. Good plays should always be part play, P-L-A-Y. Words of Tim Sanford, then the artistic director of Playwrights Horizon, speaking about Mr. Burns' A Post-Electric Play by Anne Washburn. Scranton Fringe will present Mr. Burns July 21st, 22nd, and 23rd at People's Security Theatre at Lackawanna College, and director Simone Daniels and actor Rosie Garcia stopped in at the WVIA studios to bring the show to life for us. Simone. It's an, it's an odd, it's an odd show, and I don't want to give too much away, but it's about a group of people after a large-scale event, like a large-scale apocalyptic event. It, it feels very familiar to be doing right now, definitely. But the characters in this show form a theater troupe, and they reenact Simpson episodes for survival and they figure out how to do everything. So you see them on stage, like working out costumes and making sound effects and talking about this. So it's a fun thing to build as a team, because if we didn't build the show the way that the show was performed, then it would just kind of seem dishonest. And Rosie, what did you do the last time you were in it? And how does your character change this time? Yeah, last time I, I was in it, I played Colleen, who ends up being the director of the theater troupe. And that was a lot of fun, but there was only so much that I could connect to there. This time I'm playing Quincy, who is, let's be honest, the diva of the group. She's very focused, just wants to do the work. And there's a lot of, of course, interpersonal drama because everyone's working in close quarters and living with each other and everyone's dating each other. 
And there's all that drama related to that. And Quincy just does not want to be involved with these people. So it's kind of fun being the outsider on stage, but also feeling so close to this cast already after only a week of rehearsal at this point. We're all like best of friends the second it's off. And after we are shouting at each other in a scene, we're hugging to make sure everyone's okay. What was the impetus? Why did you want to do this now, Simon? Well, Connor and I have wanted to do a show together for many years, like a big, large-scale show for many years. And we were trying to figure out title. And we went back and forth on a lot of things. And we got pretty far on some of them. And we're like, okay, okay, this would be good. And then one day he's like, how about Mr. Burns? And I was like, that's 100% the correct right answer for this time. Because it is so incredibly relevant. And that's been the bulk of our work is taking the experience that we've had over the last two years at this point, two, three years at this point, and applying it. And it's it's the kind of show I think would have it would have been interesting to have tried to do this show before the pandemic. And I think it would have felt a, a lot more distant and less relevant. And then doing a show that's about the fallout of a pandemic and the short staffing that comes as a result of that and how that completely destroyed society there's a lot for us there and it it's it's been really interesting to like talk through with everybody about our experiences in the pandemic and how we feel like that's changed society and how we feel like our places in the show and in the world it's just given us a lot to work with and and i think we do have a bit of a timeline for processing the pandemic as artists because one of our actors sean was actually in mr burns right before the pandemic i was in it during and now we're back here kind of at the tail end so we are kind of seeing yeah. how his experiences versus mine versus what we're doing now are, are all growing and developing into making what I think is going to be the exciting of those three. <laughs> yes. <laughs> is the fact that there are pop cultural references and you mentioned The Simpsons, is that something that you've seen just in theater in general? Do playwrights work in that way or is this particularly unusual in your experience of what's out there now today as theater? Yeah, it is pretty unusual. And I like I know just as myself, when I'm writing something, my instinct is always to drag in pop culture or say something quippy or do a joke. And everyone always reads it. And now I've learned to stop myself. But it's like, don't include pop culture in something because you're you're dating yourself and then it won't carry on. And it will only exist for a very short period of time. And it's kind of a waste of, of work. But this, for some reason, this takes the exact opposite approach where every single thing in this show is built around pop culture. And that's the point of it, is that it's how we interpret pop culture and re-examine it as time goes on and on and on and on and how we pass it literally through generation and oral tradition. The show is structured, it's three acts. The first act is seven weeks after this cataclysmic event. The second act, it's a bunch of survivors. The first act is the survivors sitting around recounting an old Simpsons episode. The second act is seven years later, and it's these survivors have formed an acting troupe, and they perform Simpsons episodes and commercials for people who miss television and need comfort for food and survival and batteries and whatever currency they can have. And then the third act is uh, a fully staged opera, essentially, 75 years later, of what remains of the Simpsons and, like, our society and our pop culture 75 years later with just the oral tradition and, like, how we twist that and turn it. So it's entirely about pop culture and it's entirely about dating itself. And and that's been really interesting to, to see. Do we go away thinking, yes, stories are critical to humankind and the stories that we tell each other, it makes a difference of how we're going to live? 
Well, uh, a friend who was involved with the show for a while, we were all talking about the pandemic. And look, no one is comparing <laughs> what we do to doctors. You know, like nothing, nothing. But uh, she said, you know, everyone always treats production and, and storytelling and entertainment like it's not essential or it's silly. And it's like, oh, how, how was your Netflix for two years? How was that? What, what would you have done without storytelling, without the arts, without media? What would have happened to you in that time if you couldn't leave your house? It would have broken you completely. And it's it's really important. We need it. As a society, we need it. It's how we understand each other. It's how we stay connected to each other when we can't be in a room with each other. It's how we learn about new experiences if we can't afford to have new experiences or like be somewhere having new experiences. And, and I don't necessarily believe that modern storytelling is less important than any historical storytelling. Like an opera about Marilyn Monroe was fascinating. Marilyn Monroe is a fascinating person who teaches us a lot. Jerry Springer is a fascinating opera. It's it says it says a lot about us. It says a lot about our values. It says a lot about our uh, egos, our identity. It's all it's all there, and it's I think it's a good thing to kind of this is a bit of an over exaggeration, but kind of deify our works and like really put them up on a pedestal at any time because it's a perfect time capsule of that moment. And The Simpsons, which has been a time capsule of the last thirty four years of America and has presented ideas about America all over the world is like the perfect piece to to rebuild society on, to try and piece together a society from remnants of, of this idea of America. Rosie, were you a watcher of The Simpsons before you got involved with Mr. Burns either time? Yeah, definitely. Um, part of why I was so excited when I got that casting notice is I'm playing Bart in Act 3. And obviously, as like a nerdy kid growing up, I related to Lisa, but I had an older brother who was a total brat. And so I've, I've been around a Bart a lot. And... Getting to take that character that is so beloved from my childhood and a playful and goofy and turn it into something scary and dark and heroic. All the things that we heighten and escalate in Act 3 to make it an operatic level story. It's just such an escalation and growth, but still has quotes from episodes we know and love and references and funny moments, even in the horror and the darkness. What about the music? Could it have been a play without music? I don't know. The music is really bizarre. It's really strange music. And it's fun. We've been learning it. We have a great music director, Stephen Murphy, who just bangs it out. And he plays the piano with a lot of emotion. And he's always, he's got a great ear. And he's always, he's a composer. So he's always looking for gags. And as we keep going, every time I listen to it, yesterday I came out, oh, did anyone know that there's reference? Telephone, Lady Gaga's, when they're saying telephone, everyone's (laughs) like, yeah. And then they're bringing in different... It has bits and pieces of like every pop song that's been the biggest pop song in the last 15 years is like spread throughout the score of this music. And it's just done operatic. It's really the music is perfect. It's I mean, you can talk more about it. you're singing it. So yeah. Why don't you talk more about it. It's it's so jarring that first music rehearsal when we're going through and it's like this dramatic piece and suddenly we're singing Live in La Vida Loca or Toxic and seeing how those are somehow being wrapped into the plot or being horribly twisted with new lyrics to make it what it has become over 80 years since this catastrophic event. It's so weird processing all those songs and how they get shoved together to make something new. But the more we practice it, the more it just feels right and fits and we are all singing it on our off time. We'll go hang out after at the bar and be singing (laughs) random chunks of the show. Simone, you are a lover of costumes and the importance of costumes and creating costumes. What do we find when we come to Mr. Burns? 
the costumes have been really fun to scheme about. I'm also designing the show. And I was just saying, Trozy on the way up, uh, I love making things out of garbage. And act two is all about these people have taken the remains of a society and they're repurposing any item that they can find that isn't vital to survival to make costumes. So our Marge Simpson wig in act two is made out of a, an Ikea bag that's stuffed with other bags. It's all it's all piecemeal. So this is like a really wild show. And I mean, myself and our, our production designer, Dave Reynolds, are approaching the show as like, these are three separate plays. Act one looks one way because they're surviving one way and it's one world. Act two is built out of like the, the bones of this old world. And that's, and that's the look of that. And then act three we're saying is in an abandoned opera house, I guess. So people weren't taking opera costumes to survive early on. So 75 years later, there's going to be going to be like glorious gown and there's going to be that. But there's also going to be a necklace made out of water bottles. It's going to be a mix of everything. What was left there is now being used because they don't waste anything. But the holes that they have to fill still have to come from like the waste of the world that we built 75 years earlier. So it's a really exciting show to, to design in that way. And Rosie, what about character? Are these types? Is your diva a type? Do you have a, a character to develop? Yes, I, I think they're all really human. I think everyone has some major flaws that we can we can find that person we hate or find that person we love, but I don't think any two audience members are going to feel the same way about every character. It's perfectly cast, first of all, but even just the characters themselves are not just some trope that we're playing up. These are people who have been through an apocalypse who have survived that through whatever means they had to and have all the baggage of surviving that and found themselves not trying to settle down and form a community or do the safe thing, but create art in order to keep surviving. And I think that means they all have something in common and something very real and raw. And yet they can't agree on, are we trying to do something funny and silly and not serious? Or are we trying to have a story with meaning? Or what do we want to do with these pieces that we're using? We know that often theater people love plays that have theater scenes in them. We were talking about Hamlet as you came in because that's why you were here the last time. And we know Hamlet and the players and catching the conscience of the king. But how about the fact that the second act is the formation of a theater troupe diva and <laughs> and that people are doing this work. And you explained very well about the need for storytelling and reflecting to us who we are. But the power of theater comes through in the second act in those ways? Yeah, act two is my time to shine. It's really interesting. It feels so familiar to us and yet so foreign. We're all lucky to be artists because we love it and because we may have a survival job, but acting is our passion and we're doing that because of the passion. These people all love The Simpsons and that's why they ended up in the troupe, but none of them were actors before everything fell apart. They are doing this out of survival and so when they're talking about, oh, you need to be standing here for this scene or this could be better, it's not actors collaborating and having fun like we actually are, it's do that right or we could all die because we can't feed ourselves. There's that fight or flight, there's that survival instinct that makes the stakes so much higher than the playfulness we generally get to have as artists. So even though a lot of it feels natural for us, it's still unsettling. In that connection then, when we read reviews of the play, critics have written about feeling rather discombobulated at the close. Is that the effect that this play might create in us? Yeah, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're going for. It's very disorienting. Even just starting with the structure, it's incredibly disorienting. 
So Act 3 is based on Act 2. Act 2 is based on Act 1. Act 1 is based on a Simpsons episode. That Simpsons episode is called Cape Fear, which is based on the Robert De Niro movie Cape Fear, which is based on the 1967 movie Cape Fear. So it's just continuing layers of things being passed on and changed and warped for their own use. So by the end of the show, we're at like level six or seven of storytelling. And that's something that we are leaning into. Like there's a lot of technical elements in this show. We're using a lot of electricity where it's a post-electric play. And to do it correctly, I guess, literally you wouldn't have any electricity. But we're really leaning into technology to really flex our muscles and say, like, we are the next level of storytelling. We are not living in the show. We are telling the story of a 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 story. I mean, it's like the Land O'Lake box. Like they say on Mad it's the girl holding the Land O'Lake box with the picture of the girl holding the Land O'Lake box. And it's just kind of <laughs> infinite and it never ends. So we're definitely leaning into that. And just that structure alone is very disorienting. And we don't really know where it ends or it begins and especially now in the context of our real world, where it feels like it has taken place in our real world, it's just combobulating. So I think the shift, the constant shifting in tone, the nature of the story, the very eerie music, the strange performances that everyone's putting in, it's really, it's going to be a, a bit disorienting for people, I think. Also, in reading about the play, people are concerned about copyright. Now, is that actually a theme in the show, or is that just something that Anne had to deal with as a playwright to make sure that she wasn't over-quoting things that are copyright? Well, I think that was definitely an issue for her, absolutely, because everything is kind of copyrighted material. But there's no governing body in the show. Everything is gone. So it's actually like everything is up for grabs. Everything is public domain. What kind of a space are you doing this in? Mm, we're doing it at the beautiful new theater at Lackawanna College in downtown Scranton, which they have just re-outfitted. It's been really exciting to play in there. They've re-outfitted it for esports. So there is an insane amount of incredible technology that we're getting to play with. There's like projectors everywhere and it's glorious. It's glorious to be in a space like this after so much time. And the theater just looks so beautiful and there's so much exciting technology that we get to use and play with and experiment with. So we're really grateful to them having us and Scranton Fringe, actually. They've entered a relationship with Scranton Fringe for the year and they're going to be a venue for the festival this year. So it's been a really cool partnership that I get to now play in and benefit as part of their <laughs> growing relationship. Is there some physical theater? Oh, yeah. Yeah, a lot of physical theater. There's a lot of fighting, which is great because Rosie has been doing a great job with her fight choreography. There's a lot of hints in the script, but it is still pretty free. So just sitting and playing and seeing, does this feel comfortable for this actor? Does this look good? And kind of letting it be collaborative has been really awesome. A lot of dancing, yes. like more dancing than you would think. <laughs> uh, there's a chart hits number where they reenact old like dances and songs for the audience who misses the radio. It's it's a lot of physical comedy. We joke that Act Two has a real noises off energy. It's like a lot of hijinks <laughs> and backstage, and it's it's fun. It's a very physical show. When are you going to open, and how long do we have to see it? So we open on the twenty first, uh, Thursday, July twenty first, and we run until the twenty third with two shows on the twenty third, a matinee and an evening show, and then we close. But we also have a remote stream available if people can't get to the theater or they live far away or they don't feel comfortable going and sitting in a theater just yet. We will be live streaming the show for them so it will be accessible to them at home. Tickets for that are also available on our website as well. And that's um, the Saturday are closing. Yes. Yes. There are fringes everywhere around the world. 
But Scranton Fringe is quite something in and of itself. How would you talk about Scranton Fringe? Okay, so for people who don't know what a fringe is, this is how we always have to start the fringe (laughs) conversation. So a fringe festival is a theater festival where artists create shows normally under an hour that are a little bit uh, unconventional, where they experiment with things, where they try things. Shows usually that tour pretty well and don't have a ton of huge sets or tech. It's more about the performance and the writing and the artistry and the play. So there are fringe festivals all over the world. Uh, the biggest being in Edinburgh, Scotland, which I think it's in like it's almost its 80th year. But as a result of that festival success, they popped up everywhere. And uh, Scranton Fringe started seven years ago. And so there have been five in-person fringe festivals And then the last two years, they've done Scranton Fringe Under Glass, which has been really cool, which I was really lucky enough to participate in, where storefronts in downtown Scranton donated space and people put on shows in there. And audience would walk up like on a walking tour and get silent disco headphones and the sounds from the show would be broadcast to them. So it was a great way to do social distance, safe theater during the pandemic for people. But now they're returning to an in-person festival, which will be a lot of fun because I personally have desperately missed it. There'll be a number of venues all around downtown Scranton with numerous performances happening in each and every one just on a schedule for a week. There'll be events all during the week and people just go downtown in the morning. They get a program. They pick out what shows they want to see. They take breaks for lunch. And it's a really easy to follow schedule. And you could see 10, 15, 20 shows in a weekend, all of them an hour. It's it's just a really great time to be downtown. I always say it's the premiere of everybody's fall aesthetic. You know, <laughs> a time to see and be seen. And it's always a really, really special time in downtown Scranton. And this effort, Mr. Burns, is part of the impetus to do some longer form work. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, Scranton Fringe has been expanding into year-round programming. With events like Porch Fest in the spring where they put on music and shows on people's porches in certain neighborhoods in Scranton, people walk around. And in the winter, they do holiday programming with the county and Courthouse Square and different events for the holiday. So this is their first foyer kind of into summer. And this is definitely the biggest play that they've produced. They've produced as part of the fringe pieces, like our lump, they did a production of White Rabbit, Red Rabbit, which was really cool. And every year they usually put something together, but this is their first time that they've been able to really expand themselves. Now, as we come to the close of our conversation, observations, thoughts that come to you as we've talked. Anything, Rosie? Yeah, I I think... Much like a lot of my favorite meta plays are love letters to theater, this is a love letter to pop culture. And yes, it can be dark and yes, there's other elements, but it is just so much love for all these stories that tie our community together. And even as the community shifts, the stories will still keep us together. I think that's so beautiful to witness and be a part of. Yeah, I really agree. That's that's something really special. And I've been finding it a bit cathartic to just be asking these questions after the last couple of years and going down these roads and exploring this way of thought. And it's a weird, there's a lot of really disturbing material that we've been working with, but it's been a weird comfort knowing that as bad as things have gotten, they could have gotten a lot worse. And it's nice to walk out of the theater at the end of the night and get in my car and go home. <laughs> Simone Daniels, who directs, and Rosie Garcia, who acts. They are part of the Scranton Fringe production of Mr. Burns, a post-electric play by Anne Washburn, to be presented at People's Security Theater at Lackawanna College in Scranton, and that's July 
21st, 22nd, and 23rd, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, at 7 each evening, with a Saturday matinee at 2. And as we heard, there will be a live stream of the final performance on Saturday at 7. For more information on the web, scrantonfringe.org, scrantonfringe.org. That's Mr. Burns, a post-electric play by Anne Washburn. And that's directed by Simone Daniels and features actors including our guest today, Rosie Garcia. And it's a production of Scranton Fringe, July 21st, 22nd, 23rd at 7 o'clock each evening with a Saturday matinee at 2 and a live stream for the performance Saturday evening at 7. For more information on the web, scrantonfringe.org. Org.